it was supposed to be a day of mourning, a day of defeat. It was a day for the critics and skeptics to point the finger with smug satisfaction and declare, your savior was a fraud. His death has proven it. He is buried, he is gone, and he will be forgotten. It was supposed to be a day of darkness and a day of grief. A day when broken and confused followers felt lost and overwhelmed with hopelessness. Even those who went to visit the tomb that day expected to find nothing more than a lifeless body. It was supposed to be a day of sadness and weeping. But you transformed it into a day of rejoicing, a day of victory, a day when the children of God can shout with confidence, He is alive, He is risen, and He will never be forgotten. This day has driven out all darkness and grief, erased all sin and shame. A day when followers of the true Savior are flooded with purpose, promises, and hope. This day echoes through the halls of history as the day our King crushed the head of the snake, tore through the chains of death itself, and claimed mankind for His kingdom. Tears of despair have become tears of overwhelming joy. For the Lord, Jesus Christ, has made this day of sorrow into a day of worship. you guys are here today. I forgot to tell you during the announcements that uh, on the card um, there is a scavenger hunt. You know the kids are all hunting for Easter eggs outside. We put seven misspelled words on the front of the bulletin um, and so if you're the first one to find those and circle them for me I've got a free t-shirt for you all right at the end. So um, wherever Katie is at, I know Katie's like already been all over this. She's been working on this already. So well, welcome. I am glad you guys are here today. Now, I don't know if everybody knows this, but in, um, in, in the church, there are two major holidays, right? There is Christmas and then there is Easter. So those of you that are here today, you are here on one of the two major holidays inside of the, the Christian schedule. But um, I have a question for us to consider today. Do we really need Easter? Do we really need Easter? You know, I, I don't know about you, but it sure seems like to me that Easter um, is a lot of waste of money, kind of like Christmas is sometimes, right? I mean, we get chocolate Easter bunnies. Did anybody have those at their house? Oh, I have so many of those at my house now, All right? We had dye, and they had like, my wife got out the mixing bowl. Do you know the last time the mixing bowl was out at our house? I think when we got married, and she got the mixing bowl out to dye Easter eggs with, right? She had to do some sort of a whip in order to do it. And I'm like, this is incredible. This is crazy. And then there's fake grass. I don't know who invented fake grass, but they must be a, a very, very close friend of the devil. 
That stuff is evil, right? It is straight from, well, you guys know right where it's from. That stuff, every time that you think you've got it all picked up, right, you look down and it has multiplied. And you reach down to get more of it and it clings to everything. It's like static clings to your legs. You're like, I cannot get this stuff off or anything. Fake grass is the worst. Oh, my goodness. But, um, and then hiding Easter eggs. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I always wonder about my, um, my sanity when Easter egg hunting is going on. I wonder whether or not this is just a test to find out if one day I'll have Alzheimer's, right? Because I'm pretty sure that we hid 12 eggs, but only 11 of them are found. And I cannot possibly think of any other hiding spots that we might have put that 12th egg in. And so I finally just, you know, just relinquished myself to say, well, maybe I was wrong. We didn't have 12. We just had 11. Of course, what's even worse than that is the time when you're pretty sure that you hid 12 and 13 show up. Oh, it's happened before. And you open it up. Oh, look, there's a candy prize inside of this one. Wait, don't eat that one. <laughs> Might have happened more than once in my family. But I, you know, the question is, why Easter? And really, as much as it is that question, there's also the question of who is Easter for? So if you've got your Bibles, I'd like for you to open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you've got it on your Bible or on your phone, just power it on, scroll over there. If you don't have either one of those, we will put it up on the screens. But that's a whole lot of trust in me that I'm putting the right things up on the screen. Um, but while you're turning there or scrolling there, I really want to answer that first question. That first question of who. Who is Easter for? You know, jokingly, Pastors call this day the Super Bowl of church Sundays, right? And you know, this is kind of like pulling back the curtains for just a second with you guys. So nobody, you can't talk about this when you walk out the doors, right? This is like the magician who reveals how a secret is done, a trick is done. You just don't talk about these sorts of things, okay? So I'm about to tell you that as pastors, we view this day, we know more people are going to come to church on Easter Sunday than most other Sundays, all right? But... If you were, by the way, if you were invited by a friend today, you should turn and tell them, thank you. They just invited you to the Super Bowl, right? I mean, I don't know about how many of you guys have ever gotten invited to the Super Bowl before. I've never been invited to the Super Bowl, all right? But uh, they invited you to the Super Bowl of church today. You know, it is interesting, though, to think about that idea of the Super Bowl for just a second. Because as I started thinking about that and that thing that we talk about as pastors about this being like the Super Bowl, I... I realized something. You know what I've never, ever heard? I've never heard a fan. Let's just throw out some random team that I happen to know that there's a lot of people that like around here, the Kansas City Chiefs. Any, any Chiefs fans in the room? Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, a few of you around. Those of you that are Chicago Bears fans, I can't pick on you. You've got a good team. Um, no, the Kansas City Chiefs are good right now, too. But what I've never heard a, a fan of a team say is, my team just made the Super Bowl, and so I'm going to drop whatever money I can to go to the Super Bowl to go see my team play in the Super Bowl. Now, you're thinking about that for just a second. You're going, wait, I, he's right. I don't know that I've ever heard a fan. You know, when we have national championships for college, everybody's like, I can't wait to go with my team, but when it comes to the Super Bowl, 
everybody kind of knows that it's not for the fans. It's for somebody else. And as I was thinking about Easter, I realized that it really is kind of like the Super Bowl because it's not for religious people. We may think that Easter is for religious people, but it's really not. In fact, Jesus, Jesus was really clear, and he said that he came to earth not for the righteous. In other words, not for those who were doing religion already, but he came for those who were outside of religion, outside of the church. In fact, check this out. Jesus was kicked out of the church and kicked out of his own religion. And so Jesus said, I didn't come for religious people. And so when we come to Easter, it's important for us to understand that it's not for the church people. So if you're here and you would say, you know what? I'm not really a very religious person. I'm not really, I don't really have a lot of religious background. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know what, I'm here, but I don't really feel very connected to God. Maybe you rarely go to church, but somebody drug you in the doors today and you're like, you know, I'm here. At least I'm here. Well, congratulations. Because everything that I understand is is that Easter is for you. That's who Easter is for. It's not for the religious people. That's not why Jesus gave us Easter. He gave it for the outsiders. In fact, he said, I've come to give an invitation to those who are outside of religion, an invitation to a changed life. But if that's the case, if Easter is really for you, not the religious person, not the, the zealot who lives that out all the time, and that's all that they can talk about is these rules and regulations, but it's for relationship and for some sort of change, then why do we need it? If, that's, if it's for you and it's for me, why? Why Easter? You know, I, I believe that Easter changes everything. In fact, there's a word that we use now that's called game changer. Maybe you've heard it. And I think Easter was probably one of the very first game changers that was ever out there. And our passage today is written by a man named Paul. Now, Paul, he used to be a religious person. In fact, Paul was so religious. He was so religious that he walked around and hunted down Anybody who was a threat to his religion. Sounds like a great guy to be a friend with, right? That's the guy that you're like, hey, I want to be best friends with him on Facebook. He might come knock on my door and shoot me if I don't believe the same things that he does. That's how religious he was. But Paul, Paul had a moment in his life, a moment of blinding truth where he came face to face with what Easter is all about. And it radically changed his life. Later on in his life, he was writing a letter about this experience. He wrote it to a group of people who were in the city of Corinth. 
And it was all about this idea of why Easter, why we need Easter, and why it was for us. In fact, he even goes into what is perhaps an even bigger question of what if Easter never happened? Now, to to be fair, in just a moment as we read this passage, Paul's not going to use the word Easter in it. Paul's going to use the word resurrection. But as he does, I want you to know that that's what he's talking about is Easter, because Easter is all about the resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at this passage together, this letter that Paul wrote. It's 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to start in verse 12. It says this. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. Okay, let me pause just for a second. I'm going to jump right back in, I promise. But that right there, that proclamation that Jesus was the Son of God who died on the cross and came back to life, the proclamation of that is Easter. Jumping back in. So how can some of you then say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ could have been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then what happens is our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ And if he did not, then it's not true and that the dead are not, in fact, raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ could have been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. For if in Christ we only have hope in this life, then we of all people are to be most pitied. Hmm. So Paul says, if there was no Easter, if there was no moment where Jesus rose from from the dead, then there are some things that impact our life. The first thing is he says there'd be nothing else but this life. He says if Jesus never rose from the dead, there would be nothing but this life. There'd be no life after this life, right? There'd be no hope that's beyond the grave. There would be no victory. None. In fact, what it would mean is is that there would be no meaning to the ups and the downs that we experience inside of our lives. Those things that are good would just be good and those things that are bad would just be bad and it would all be meaningless. There would be no greater purpose to any of it. And if Jesus had only come and lived in order to give hope for just this life, then that's not really much hope. And Paul says, if that's the case, if that's the case, then we should be pitied. We should have the most sympathy and empathy poured out from the world upon us because that means there is nothing else. In fact, he even says that I would have no job. There'd be no need for preachers. I'm really glad, by the way, he continues on in the passage. 
Paul goes on and he says in verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For just as by a man came death into the world, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, everybody dies. But just like that in Christ, so all shall be made alive. And each of those would be in his own order. First would be Christ, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for Easter. I thank you that we have a day that we get to look back on and celebrate how everything was changed. That Jesus rose again from the dead. God, I am so thankful for the invitation, the invitation to change that Paul gives inside of this. God, I pray that in the next moments as we continue to talk that we would hear that, that we would hear your words and that you would use them in a profound and powerful way to change us. God, help us to be more like you. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Well, the year was 1997, and to be honest, very few people knew his name. He was 21 years old. It was the first day of the tournament, and on the front nine, he shot a four over 40. In fact, it took a miracle on the back nine, which included an eagle, for him to finish the day at just under par but four days later on sunday 44 million americans tuned in and learned this 21 year old's name they witnessed something that had never been seen before he was the youngest and he was the first non-white to ever win the masters 1997 was a pretty good year for Tiger Woods. Not only did he win the Masters that year, but he went on to win four tournaments that year, and he netted $62 million between tournament winnings and endorsements. At the end of the golf year, though, he picked up his phone and he called his swing coach. And he said, Coach, I want to change my entire swing. The coach said, why? He says, because I know it's good, but it's not good enough. It can be better. The coach said, well, okay, if you're really serious about changing this, we can do that. So here it was, Tiger Woods has just won $62 million on his swing, and he wants to change it. And over the next 20 months, he began to work to change his swing 
And in that time frame, he only won the t- a tournament one time. After bursting onto the scene, winning four and so much, he began to lose sponsors and people that came alongside of him as he worked day and night and hit thousands of practice balls in order to perfect the change. And in 2001, just a few short years later, Tiger had perfected his new swing. And he went on over the course of 16 tournaments to win 14 of them. Six of them in a row. And for the first time in history, he, one golfer, held all four major titles. Never been done before that at one time a golfer had done that. You know, it's interesting because we know that just a few years after this change that Tiger lost everything. He lost everything. And when he lost it all, the world looked at him and they wondered why. How could this incredibly gifted and talented man, a man who had the greatest golf swing in the world, lose everything? And the answer is is that a golf golf swing is something external. Tiger changed something on the outside without changing things on the inside. You know, it's true of a lot of us in this room. We try to change external things around us. In fact, we see stories of people who change their names in order to get a brand new start on something. They're like, I just want a, a new name to let everybody know that I'm new and going to start a new path. We try to be more disciplined. We, we write out things on a calendar. We do things that are all external in order to change the things in our lives. But true change doesn't come from anything external. It comes from something different. I'm sure if I asked you guys the question about if you ever wanted to be better, many of you would say, yeah. I want to be better. And many of you that are sitting there, you say, no, I, I know that I'm good. I have a, a, a good life. I, I, things are, are, are good, but I, I just, I know that I could be better. But it doesn't really seem like any external change that you've attempted to make has really helped you to be better. Maybe it's possible that you just need a different kind of a change. Something that changes everything and not just the outside. I think Paul says right here in this passage that Easter or the resurrection changes everything. If you move up in the text into earlier verses, you find Paul's story where he talks about not only the encounters of others with the resurrection, but his own personal encounter with the resurrection. And that it changed everything for him. I want to point out three things that Paul talks about in this passage that we read about what changed for him. Here's the first one if you're taking notes. Easter changes my past. Easter changes my past. You know, I don't have to know your story to know that you have a past. 
everybody sitting in this room has a past. Now, your past is probably not quite like Tiger Woods' past. But just like Tiger, you have moments that you're extremely proud of. But we also have moments that we're incredibly ashamed of. Moments that we would give anything, that we wish that we could go back and change them and do them over again. And if only we could do that. Those sort of moments are the moments that, if we're honest, they usually have scarred us. They've scarred our families, our friends, our coworkers. And some of you may be sitting there and thinking, if people just knew what that thing that I'm so ashamed of is, how much different they would look at me. Paul wrote in verses 21 and 22, he says, For as a man, for as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You know, it's interesting because in Paul's argument here, he lumps all of our sin together with a guy named Adam. Now, Adam was the very first human that God created. And Adam was given a job, and he was given a rule. One job and one rule. And he broke the rule. And for the very first time, sin entered into the world. Adam had sinned. He had missed the mark of what God had asked of him, of what God had required of him. And in doing so, in breaking that rule, he broke the relationship that he had with God. And along with that broken relationship, and along with that miss, came death and sorrow. And Paul says, everything in our past is tied up in this same moment. All of our shortcomings and our failures are tied up in this same moment. Those things that miss the mark of what it is that God desires from us and for us are all tied to Adam and our own inabilities. Our own inabilities to follow God. But Paul says, he says that Easter changed that. In fact, he says, my past mistakes are forgiven. In Jesus, I'm no longer tied to the mistakes of Adam. But that is severed. It's broken. And no longer do I have to be tied to that. But now I can live free of everything that Adam ever did and how it affects and impacts my life. You know, Rick Warren tells a story. He tells a story about when he was in junior high school and he was in a woodworking class. He said his dad was a great carpenter. In fact, his dad built lots of different churches and furniture and all kinds of things. And so his dad was like a master carpenter. And Rick said, I wanted to make my dad proud, and so I began to work on a table. 
and he said it was a disaster. He said, I think the table was supposed to have four legs, and it had five. He said, normally a table sits flat, and this one kind of leaned. He said, when I got done with it, I was ashamed of it, and I didn't even want to show it to my dad. He said, but my dad walked into the garage, and he saw the table that I'd been working on. It was pathetic, and Rick was incredibly discouraged. Even though he tried really, really hard, and he put a lot of effort into it, it just, it was just a mess. Have you ever felt that way in your life? You work really, really hard at something. You're trying just as hard as you can, but no matter how hard you try, it just seems to keep turning out in a mess. Well, Rick goes on to say that when his dad walked in and he looked at the table, when he saw what it was that, that Rick had worked so hard on, he said his dad didn't say to him, I'm disappointed in you. You could do better than this. You didn't live up to the Warren name whenever you were doing this. You, you're pathetic. Instead, instead, his dad looked at him and said, it's okay, son. He said, you can start over on this. And this time, I'll help you. This time, I'll help you. You know what? I think that's exactly what Paul is saying about how Easter changes our past. God says because of Easter, because of the moment of the resurrection where we now have the ability to have life, Jesus says, you can start over. And this time, I'll help you. That's incredible news. But Easter not only changes our past. Easter also changes our future. Just a few verses after that, Paul writes and he says, But each in their own order says Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He's talking about those who will be resurrected just like Christ was resurrected. And then he says, then comes the end. I love that. Then comes the end. And Jesus delivers back the kingdom to God, the Father. And after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, and check this out, he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, the resurrection not only changes my past and frees me and releases me from everything that is tied up with Adam, but it changes my future destiny. Because of Adam back here, when I'm chained to everything that he did and the sin that exists in my own life, my destiny is one thing, and it is death and destruction and separation from God. And Jesus said, no more. I'm changing your future. I'm changing your future so that you can be with me forever, and I will be the one that delivers you back to God. And it changes our future. By the way, if you're sitting out there and you're what we would call a universalist, right? You're, you think that, hey, all the different paths to God 
as long as somebody is pursuing a path to God, are good. And eventually, all roads lead to heaven. I just want to ask you a question for a second. Why would somebody who doesn't already love God and have a relationship with him here want to go to heaven? A place that is all about him. If you ask me, if there's any evidence of what hell would be like, the universalist has just named it. Because the person who doesn't love God on this earth surely is not going to love him in the next. That would be the very definition of what a living hell would be like. Is to have to go to the place that you've rejected here your entire life and now you have to go be a part of it. But for those whose past is changed, so too is their future. But here's my favorite of the three things that I think Paul talks to us about. Not only that our, our past is changed, not only that our future is changed but here's the final thing easter changes my present easter changes my present you know a friend of mine shared a story about a girl named jenny now jenny grew up on a a, a cherry orchard near traverse city michigan and her parents her parents were a little bit old-fashioned. And when Jenny got a nose ring, they were not very excited about that. When Jenny began to wear different kinds of clothes, they were not very excited about that. When Jenny started listening to the wrong kind of music, in their opinion, they were not happy about that. When all of these things came together, her dad had a conversation with her, and it turned into a heated argument. And Jenny looked at her dad and said, I hate you. I hate you. She left. Night, she ran away to Detroit. While she was in Detroit, a man rolled up in a really big and a really nice car. And he took Jenny in. He took her to this amazing penthouse room. And she could order all of the goodies that she wanted. She could eat to her heart's desire. And then he began to give her some pills that made her feel good. It took away all of her worries. And then he began to teach her things that made guys feel good. And he said, look, these guys will pay money for you to do these sorts of things. And she began to do that. And they began to pay money. And after about a year, Jenny got sick. She couldn't work anymore. And it wasn't long before the man who had been so nice to her was no longer nice. And as she couldn't work, he kicked her out of the penthouse that she'd been in she was on the streets and she had to use every little bit of money that she had saved because she'd gotten hooked on those little pills that she thought were making her feel so good and she used everything she had in order to buy them until she got to a point where 
There was nothing. And in that moment, freezing on the streets of Detroit with just enough money in her pocket to be able to buy a bus ticket to go home, Jenny decided that she'd go back home. She picked up the phone. She called home. One ring, two rings, no answer. She hung up. She picked up the phone. She called again. One ring, two rings, three rings. The answering machine picked up. She hung up. Finally, she called one more time. Answering machine picked up again. She said, Mom, Dad, I don't know if you're there. She said, but I'm coming home. She said, actually, what I did is I bought a bus ticket. And the bus will pull in about midnight tonight. She said, if, if, you, if you're there, when the bus gets there, and she said, but if you're not, she said, I'm just going to stay on the bus and head on into Canada. And she hung up the phone. And she got on the bus. The bus ride was seven hours. And as you can imagine, as you're bumping along with nothing but your thoughts, she began to think to herself, I, I, don't, I don't even know what I'll say. What are they what are they going to think? What, what is, will they even show up? Finally, the, the bus rolled into the station. The bus driver called out over the intercom and said, we'll stop for 15 minutes. Jenny took a deep breath. She opened up her compact lens. Checked her makeup just a little bit. Stepped off the bus. As she stepped into the station, she looked around to see if her mom and dad were there. And what she saw blew her away. Because not only was her mom and her dad there, her sister and her brother and her aunts and her uncles and her next door neighbors were all there. Forty people had gathered at the bus station with party signs and welcome home signs and were so excited and with tears streaming down her face as she buried her head into her dad's shoulder she began to say dad I'm so and he said sweetheart we don't have time for that right now you're going to be late for your party we have to go I love that story because her present was changed because her past had already been forgiven and her future had already been forgiven. In that moment, it was all about being present. You see, when our past is changed and when our future is changed, Here's what it does. It gives us the ability to come into the very presence of God. You know, I love this. God says anybody 
who comes into his presence and says, God, I want to be in your presence. That's where I want to be. A declaration, just like she picked up the phone call and said, I'm coming home. That's where I want to be. And she turned and left everything behind. God says, he's throwing a party for us. All of the angels in heaven celebrate over the person who's coming home. And it changes our present. I'm going to skip to the end of the chapter. By the way, this chapter is packed. And there's all kinds of great things that are in 1 Corinthians 15. And I encourage you to read it this week. But at the very end, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord what you do is not in vain. You know what I love more than anything about Easter? Easter gives me the courage to face today. It's all about the present. Let's pray. God, I know that today can be a hard day. Whether it's things that are in our past, whether it's things that are in our future, they all collide on today. But God, I'm so, so incredibly thankful that Jesus stepped into history and he said, I want to change all of that. I want to change everybody's past. I want to change everybody's future. Because he knew the impact that that would have on our todays. You know, maybe some of you are sitting here and you'd say, you know what, I've never, ever made a decision. I've never done what it is that you're talking about of saying, Jesus, I want you to be the one that's in my life. I turn away from the one that's in charge of it, and I want you to be the one that's in charge. We call that being a Jesus follower around here. And if that's you and you say, you know what, I've never, ever done that, but today I want to have my past completely changed. I want to have my future changed because I need today changed. on your phone in the next couple of minutes while we're singing this song if you'll text the word jesus follower jesus follower to the number nine seven zero 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 this week somebody from our church will call you and we will talk about what it means to step across that line and become a jesus follower and about how it changes everything god i thank you again God, I'm praying right now for somebody that's out there that says, God, I desperately just need my today changed. And that they would make a decision to become a Jesus follower for the very first time. God, I give you glory and honor. And it's in your powerful and holy name that we pray. Amen.